Hailing frequencies open, and welcome to this sixth, sixth, I think so, installment of Forgotten TV Supplemental, the long overdue podcast that is going to catch you up with all things Forgotten TV. I'll first take a look at the follow-up of the WizKids podcast series, which gave us, as far as right now is concerned, uh, the definitive look at the origin and behind-the-scenes production of WizKids. And I'm going to follow that up with some supplemental material about uh, Timothy Winslow from the 414s, as well as Bill Landreth from the Inner Circle. You know, those real-life WizKids hacker groups that were getting themselves in trouble in the summer of 1983. We'll take a look at some Forgotten TV miscellany. Um, some notable deaths that have happened uh, in recent months with uh, uh, some people that we have lost and an update on podcasts that are currently in development. Let's start by taking a look at uh, some items to get us caught up in the world of Forgotten TV. First, I wanted to share an update from actress and singer Ketty Lester. You may be very familiar with uh, Ketty being uh, Hester Sue Terhune on Little House on the Prairie. Um, recent message from Ketty uh, told us, just wanted to let everyone know that I'm doing fine and that I'm praying for you and all our country. My book is still going to be published, but that was delayed due to the virus. I thank you all for thinking of me, and I will be getting to all your messages as soon as I can. Ketty Lester, of course, was a, a, a groundbreaking actress and singer from Hope, Arkansas. Her given name was Revoida Frierson, and she grew up singing in the church choir. She took her stage name when she began singing at the Purple Onion Nightclub in San Francisco. At the dawn of the 60s, uh, she released singles I'm a Fool for You and Love Letters, which charted in the U.S. and the U.K. for three years. Following her recurring role on the groundbreaking series Julia in 1969, she appeared in the black exploitation film Blackula in 1972. And you will see her, of course, throughout 70s and 80s television. She was on that Cops and Robin installment of Future Cop, uh, covered in a previous episode of Forgotten TV. And like I said, you're most likely going to recognize her from her role as Hester Sue, who taught at the blind school on Little House on the Prairie alongside Mary and Adam Kendall. So her upcoming autobiography, From the Cotton Fields to Grammy-Nominated Love Letters to Little House on the Prairie, will be available for pre-order soon. And as soon as that's available, I will let you know and link up to that on the Forgotten TV social media feeds. And talking about TV history, legendary TV director Ralph Sineski was just on the Inglorious Trexperts podcast. If uh, you are a Star Trek fan, you may already be a, a, aware of this podcast that's uh, brought to you on the Electric Surge Podcast Network, where hosts Mark A. Altman and Darren Doctorman talk about all things Star Trek. Well, they just had legendary director Ralph Sineski on their latest episode. He's somebody that's been mentioned more than once on Forgotten TV podcast. And he brought us classic, many classic episodes, actually, of Star Trek, The Waltons, uh, Dr. Kildare, The Partridge Family, Heart to Heart, 
He directed an episode of James at 15. Although he told me he doesn't remember anything about that one episode of James at 15, he well remembers directing Lance Kerwin on his prior show, The Family Holvac. Ralph Sineski discussed his Star Trek history, as well as his work on shows like Playhouse 90 and The Paper Chase on the most recent episode of Inglorious Trexperts. It's available wherever you listen to podcasts, and I'll link up to it in the notes on this episode. Also in between working on podcast development, I have started writing a column on the Second Union website called Socially Distant Cinema, where I cover movies from the 70s and 80s that you'll be able to find on various streaming platforms. So far, I have covered Mazes and Monsters, The Stuff, Battle Beyond the Stars, The Gate, and Space Raiders. So check out the Socially Distant Cinema column on Second Union. It's at wearesecondunion.com. Now let's take a look at the supplementary material for the WizKids podcast. Now if you recall, there were two hacker groups that were targeted by the FBI in the summer of 1983. The first was called the 414s, based on in Milwaukee. And if you'll recall, they got themselves into trouble by dialing into places like the Los Alamos National Laboratory and uh, a bank and a cancer center. The podcast covered how they got caught and uh, got into trouble for doing that. One notable member was uh, mentioned in the podcast by the name of Neil Patrick, who got out in front of the legal case surrounding the group and started his own media campaign. Appearing on all the TV networks, he was on Donahue, he was on the Sunday talk shows, and he was on the cover of Newsweek magazine. And nine days before WizKids premiered, he testified before Congress about computer hacking and the state of computer security, and cooperated with the FBI in exchange for immunity from prosecution. Well, a couple of the other 414 members weren't quite as fortunate. They were the ones that were of legal age. Timothy Winslow was 18 and uh, Gerald Wundra was 21. And they were finally charged with a crime uh, after a couple of years, uh, even though the FBI had to get creative with uh, what they could be charged with. Timothy Winslow wrote an article that was carried by uh, multiple websites in 2016, and I thought I would go ahead and read that to you because it is very interesting to get a view of from his perspective. I can't remember exactly when my teenage fascination with computers collided with the federal government, but I will never forget the morning in 1983 when two FBI agents showed up on my parents' doorstep. I had gone to bed around 4 or 5 a.m. after spending hours on my computer, which was pretty common for me back then at age 18. A few hours later, my mom woke me up, telling me there were a couple of men here to see me and that they said something about it being official or federal business. I had a slight fear this day would come because only a couple of days earlier, I had a strange call from a friend asking me what I would do if I were visited by the police or some type of investigation team. Two men sitting at my kitchen table pulled out badges and stated they were with the FBI. They said they needed to talk to me. Let me start with a little history. I got my first taste of computers in the mid-1970s in junior high school. We had a teletype terminal 
that had been brought to our school with an acoustic modem attached. We were shown how it worked, and some of us had a chance to do some math testing. I did not get to use it the first time, but I stayed after school that evening to see if I could get a chance to try it out. The teacher dialed into the central office computer, logged in, and started the math program. I felt a new world open for me. For the first time in my life, I saw something that made me imagine what I wanted to do when I grew up. That junior high school computer math program led me to computer classes in high school. There, I learned of an Explorer Scout group sponsored by IBM. For the next couple of years, I built a friendship with a group of people who had interests similar to mine, some closer than others. We would play with computers at school, in Explorer Scouts, in stores like Radio Shack, and at home. Finally, in 1982, I bought my first computer. Some of my friends already had computers, and now my time came, and I finally got my own. I purchased a Heathkit H89, which we built in a friend's basement. At the same time, I also bought a Hayes 309 baud smart modem. I used my computer and modem to log on to Electronic Bulletin Board Systems, or BBSs, and create more friendships and acquaintances. We were a curious group and we were eager to learn more and more about the different computers made and how they worked. We ended up getting into about a dozen computer systems, from the Sloan Kettering Cancer Center in New York, to a major international bank system in Los Angeles, to the Los Alamos National Laboratory in New Mexico, one of only two U.S. laboratories dedicated to nuclear weapons research. We were really just looking around and playing games on these systems, we didn't want to harm anything. This was pretty easy because computers back then were built with a basic set of login information, all of it written in the manuals. We didn't see any harm in it. We would share information with each other about any particularly interesting system we connected to, and when we got together for explorers, we'd talk about exploring, not harming systems. At some point, we started calling our group the 414s a name we came up with after hanging out at a local park. We noticed etchings on the tables with numbers like 1-9 and 2-7, gang signatures that came from the streets where they operated. Since we all lived in the Milwaukee area, we more or less jokingly gave ourselves the gang name of 414s for the Milwaukee area code. As the months went on, we started to notice issues staying connected with our modems for any length of time. Then, the FBI showed up at my home. Remember, back then, home computers were very new, so there were no computer hacking laws. After about a year of back and forth with the FBI, three of us were eventually charged under a federal provision against harassing phone calls, which carried a maximum of six months in prison and a $500 fine each. As I sat before the judge with my lawyer, he asked why he should not give me prison time. I had recently met the love of my life and we were expecting our first child. So I explained that I would like to be around to see the birth of my baby and live a happy and normal family life. The judge agreed to a plea deal with a stipulation that I could not own a modem during the time I remained on probation. Under the deal, we were charged with misdemeanors that carried two years probation and a $500 fine. 
our records would be expunged under the Federal Youth Corrections Act. Today, more than 30 years later, I'm still fascinated by computers. I'm employed as a network engineer, and at home, I tinker around on about half a dozen computers. Oh, and I'm still married to the love of my life. The things that we did set the stage for more than just our personal career paths. We helped create several federal laws that are still on the books for computer crime and password safety. It makes me proud as a network engineer working partially in security, knowing that, in a way, what we did as a group made for safer computing today. There are still lots of issues with people using simple passwords, companies leaving too many doors open, and just the massive amounts of computing power available to work on decoding and breaking into systems. We could have caused some damage to these companies, and many were surprised that we just looked around and played games. Today, hacking is a whole different world. So there we get an interesting perspective on the origin of the 414s from Milwaukee. The other group that we talked about on the podcast behind the scenes of WizKids was called the Inner Circle, which was based in California. And uh, writer Matt Novak with uh, Gizmodo did research and found and met up with one of the original Inner Circle members named Bill Landreth. And he wrote the story of his meeting with Bill and Bill's story. And I'll cover that now. On October 12th, 1983, Bill Landreth called his friend Chris in Detroit to chat. Chris frantically explained that the FBI had raided his house. Don't call me anymore, Chris said in what would be a very short conversation. Bill didn't know exactly what was happening, but he did know this. If the FBI had come for Chris, then he might be next. The next day, around a dozen FBI agents stormed Bill's parents' house just outside of San Diego, amassing piles of evidence, including a computer that Bill, then 18, had hidden under his sister's bed. Bill and Chris, who was 14 at the time, were the leaders of a coalition of teen hackers known as the Inner Circle. In a single day, the FBI conducted coordinated raids of group members across nine states, taking computers, modems, and copious handwritten notes detailing ways to access various networks on what was then a rudimentary version of the Internet. The Inner Circle was a motley group of about 15 hackers, almost all teenagers, from Southern California, Detroit, New York, and roughly five other regions of the U.S. Bill, Chris, and other members of their collective had been accessing all kinds of networks, from GTE's Telemail, which hosted email for companies like Coca-Cola, Raytheon, Citibank, and NASA, to the ARPANET, which was largely used by university researchers and military personnel until Milnet was completed in the mid-1980s. Chris was fond of boasting on message boards about hacking the Pentagon. The Inner Circle wasn't the only teen hacking group of the early 1980s, but their interference with both government networks and the email accounts of large corporations put them on the FBI's radar. Along with the 414s, a group busted around the same time, the raids made national headlines. 
The inner circle's actions would inspire a complete overhaul in how computer crime was prosecuted through the introduction of the country's first anti-hacking laws in 1984. I decided to track down members of the inner circle and find out what happened during their heyday and infamous bust, and where it's led them today. In the process, I've obtained 351 pages of FBI documents about early 80s teen hacker communities through a Freedom of Information Act request. The pages are heavily redacted, but they fill in some of the many holes that remain about the inner circle, the FBI's crash course in computers, and the teen computer underground of the early 1980s. The story of Bill and Chris is one of simple curiosity and the birth of the modern internet in an era before computer hacking laws existed. It was an era when most of America, including virtually everyone in the FBI, couldn't tell you what a modem was. This period, from roughly 1979 until 1983, was a mythical Wild West for kids who became interested in computers and saw the rising popularity and declining price of personal computers as well as the release of the movie, War Games. The kids of this period were early adopters, and they got into plenty of trouble. After War Games came out in June 1983, every wannabe hacker with more money than sense went out and got a computer and modem from places like Radio Shack, thinking they could get their fingers close to the big red button. It didn't work that way, of course, but there were plenty of other hijinks that kids of the early 1980s could pull with a computer, a phone line, and the special brand of fearlessness that comes with youth. The FBI started tracking the inner circle in 1982, but it wasn't until late 1983 that they'd finally bust the group. In large part, that bust was possible because of a 42-year-old pseudo-vigilante hacker known as John Maxfield, a former phone freak who fancied himself the proto-internet's sheriff. Maxfield gained the trust of teen hacker communities on bulletin board systems, or BBSs, in the early 1980s and fed the information to the FBI. Maxfield provided the FBI with the intelligence they needed on the inner circle's exploits, especially when it came to the hacking of Telenet's telemail email system. Chris Bored and frustrated, had started deleting emails of Coca-Cola executives and using administrator passwords to change the names on accounts. GTE, the company that operated the telemail service, wasn't pleased. After all, the hackers were using telemail illegally, which is to say, for free. FBI documents spell out just how much time was being stolen by these kids, right down to the penny. For example, use of BMW's messaging service by unauthorized users in September 1983 cost GTE 29 cents. Unauthorized use of Raytheon's accounts in the same month totaled $298. But it was the widespread loss of faith in the system security that was the most damaging to GTE. I spoke with Bill and Chris, but was unable to connect with any of the other the Inner Circle members, or Maxfield. A letter sent to Maxfield's last known P.O. box has yet to receive a reply, and the last known number I could find for him was disconnected. For all I know, he's dead, 
or he's elderly and keeping a low profile. Maxfield always tried to stay off the radar, but after he was exposed as an FBI informant in late 1983, he became the most loathed man on the Internet. When I met Bill Landreth at a Starbucks in Santa Monica, he was sitting quietly at a table drinking coffee with two bags on the seat across from him and a bag of blankets in the corner. A pipe made out of an apple and filled with what I assumed was medical marijuana sat at the table next to his coffee and Samsung tablet. A passing cop glanced at the spread, but didn't raise an eyebrow. Arranging our meeting was tricky, because Bill isn't sure where he'll be sleeping from night to night. Now 52, with a slight goatee and a tussle of wavy hair that nearly reaches his shoulders, Bill has been living on the streets for 30 years. But if it wasn't for his receding hairline and a certain grayness to his gaze, he'd probably pass for a decade younger. There's something assertive yet firmly guarded about the way he speaks. It's as though Bill's a man who's not afraid to say what he thinks, but still worries about saying something out of line in front of me. In our conversation, he was calm, affable, and clearly intelligent, and almost immediately began rattling off computers and computing languages of which I have little to no background or understanding. Bill got his first computer in 1980, he tells me. It was a TRS-80 from Radio Shack. He was 14 or 15 and explains that he planned to get the version with 8K of memory using $500 he had saved. His dad offered to pitch in another $500 and he got the 16K version with a cassette tape drive for storage. He also picked up a 300 baud modem. Bill was a quick learner and developed a knack for the basic programming language. From there, he'd learn other languages, and his desire to explore the world of computing became overpowering. After he'd conquered one area, there was always something new around the corner. He was an explorer, more interested in mapping the entire terrain than in penetrating deep into any given network. Bill, who would take up the moniker The Cracker, found community with an emerging group of misfits online. They gave him a sense of place in the new world he was traversing. You didn't really meet many of the other people, Bill says. You could go out of your way to try to, but Bill's connections were through his modem and phone. He's the son of two hippies who spent much of his childhood living a semi-nomadic lifestyle. His dad, an astronomy lover, built telescopes under the brand name Essential Optics. But he only charged people for parts at cost, and hardly charged anything for his labor. The only moderate business success Bill's father ever had was selling grow lamps in the 1970s. He even bought full-page ads for the lamps, ostensibly to grow tomatoes, in High Times magazine. Despite his friend's Chris warning on October 12, 1983, Bill wasn't sure the FBI was coming for him when they did. Aside from his grow lamp business, Bill's dad had a tendency to go up to Big Bear, a rural touristy area about four hours outside of L.A., to pick up LSD and cocaine. To this day, Bill's still not convinced there wasn't some attempt by the FBI to get at his father through him. But they had come for Bill. Along with other teenage nerds in his collective, Bill was hacking the first commercial packet-switched network, Telenet. 
The Telenet network, now owned by Raytheon, was inspired by the structure of the ARPANET and had local hosts in 52 cities by the early 1980s. Tapping into that network's mail system allowed Bill and his hacker friends to make local calls to chat, rather than tricking the phone system into letting them make long-distance calls for free, a necessity if you wanted to post on a BBS outside your area code without amassing huge bills. Someone told Bill that administrator accounts for GTE's telemail simply used a capital A for the password. So I would just try last names with capital A, and I would get a lot of accounts, Bill tells me. So that was what let me in to be able to make other people's accounts, and we'd just have conversations. Bill's plea agreement is thin, with just eight pages detailing his crimes. In 1983, there were no computer hacking laws, but the courts in Virginia clearly thought that penetration of computer networks was a serious crime, even if nothing was stolen. So Bill was charged with wire fraud, which essentially amounted to the crime of making three phone calls with his computer. When we leave Starbucks and go to lunch, Bill packs up his tablet and charger and puts on his backpack. He throws his clear plastic bag, filled with blankets and a small tent, over his head, carrying the enormous parcel with the weight distributed on his pack and the back of his neck. As we eat, Bill tells me stories of the past 30 years, of his struggles with mental illness and living on the streets of San Diego, Los Angeles, and Santa Barbara. We trade stories about the different psychiatric medications we've tried. I've been having issues with my depression and mood stabilizer meds, which made me incredibly tired throughout the day. Bill's convinced that self-medication is the way to go. He shares that he's been diagnosed as manic-depressive and has had a few involuntary trips to the local mental health facility via police. The taxi service, as he calls them. Bill tells me that when it comes to basic hygiene, he showers at his brother's place in town, I can't bring myself to ask why he doesn't live with his brother. Throughout lunch, I try asking in at least three different ways what Bill's motivation for hacking was. Each time, it was like asking someone why they'd read a book or watch a movie. Bill says he just wanted to know what was out there. There's a blunt cadence in his tone that makes me believe him, and the FBI documents bear this out. When he'd crack into financial institutions, it was always shallow. He wasn't looking to steal a million bucks or get deep into any system for personal gain, but he did enjoy being a voyeur. Bill and his friends would often pull pranks, like getting all the phone operators from a certain area on a giant conference call together. Chris even got a bunch of senior military personnel on what must have been the most confusing phone call of all time. Despite having his home raided and the computer equipment seized, Bill wouldn't be charged for nine months. He says he didn't want to get a lawyer and was confident that he could fight on his own. Bill tells me his strategy would have been to convince a jury or judge that his crime was like walking into a huge mansion, unlocked. He just wanted to look around. As Bill explains his thought process, I hold my tongue, knowing that this line of reasoning makes sense to someone who grew up in a hippie family and the Western ethos of exploration that often comes with it. But I also knew that it wouldn't have worked for a second in front of a federal judge 
on the other side of the country. Bill's father convinced him that he needed a lawyer, a move Bill still thinks was a mistake. They struck a deal, giving Bill three years probation for pleading guilty to three counts of wire fraud. Bill's family moved to Alaska, and Bill moved in with friends in Poway, California. Without a computer, he went dark on the BBS boards. He attended the University of California, San Diego, for a while, but soon traveled to Mexico and then to Oregon. He never told his probation officer where he was going, and was picked up in Oregon and flown to San Diego, where he served three months in jail. After getting out, Bill knew he had to find a way to make money. He weighed about 120 pounds at the time and needed income. Bill says he was sort of fasting, though his eyes betrayed that he didn't probably have any money for food. Rather, he found his desire for a computer even more important than his hunger. I really wanted a computer, but I couldn't figure out how to make money to buy a computer, Bill says. When I first bought a computer in 1980, I already had $500, but by this time, I didn't really have any money saved up or anything. So he cut out all the headlines he'd collected from friends across the country, splashy, sensationalistic spreads about the Crackers' big FBI bust. He found a literary agent and wrote his entire book proposal by hand before hammering it out on an old typewriter. His agent got two responses, one from Microsoft, which offered a $5,500 advance. The book, co-authored by Howard Rheingold, was published in 1984 under the title Out of the Inner Circle. Bill immediately spent the entire sum of his advance on a new computer. When his royalty checks started drying up around two years later, Bill looked for work here and there. He took a job with Scientology that promised $200 a week selling books, but quickly learned he'd be making a dollar a day and promptly quit. Today, he's able to feed himself, buy medicinal weed, and sometimes splurge on a tablet thanks to Social Security payments and California food stamps. But he hasn't had a stable home since high school. Bill's entire existence is stuffed into three bags, and keeping an eye on them is a constant struggle. When his stuff is stolen, he often doesn't know if it's by other homeless people or the police. He says he has to buy new blankets once every three weeks, and his $150 Samsung tablet is always in danger of getting stolen. Bill's life, he says, is a constant stream of indignities and harassment from police. They enforce ordinances arbitrarily and inconsistently, trying to push homeless people out of sight. Bill tells me of a bridge he was sleeping under in Santa Barbara. An officer approached him, handcuffed him, searched all his belongings, and told him he couldn't sleep on that side of the road under the bridge. He was cited for illegal camping, but was told that sleeping on the other side was okay. So the next night, he moved across the street. The police officer came back and gave him another ticket. Bill figures he has about $10,000 in unpaid legal fees and fines, most of it interest on the debt that grows and grows over time. It couldn't be further from the life of Chris, the 14-year-old who exchanged a brief phone call with Bill after his own 
FBI raid. Chris's story is that of a kid who grew up to thrive in the culture of our burgeoning internet. With just a few minor tweaks, Bill's story could have been similar. Bill tells me he hasn't talked with Chris in 30 years, and they never met in person. But he has only fond memories of their friendship from halfway across the country. I spoke with Chris over the phone under the condition that I not use his real name. In the early 1980s, he was known online as the Wizard of ARPANET, a moody punk who bragged incessantly about the networks he'd penetrated. Today, he's an upstanding family man working with computers. He declined to get specific in a suburb of Detroit. It's been a long time since I've talked about the Wizard of ARPANET days, Chris tells me over the phone from his home outside Detroit. Chris was 14 when the FBI came knocking on his door. Chris was an Atari guy, and his first computer was an Atari 2600. You could plug in a basic cartridge and it had like 1K of memory, and you could do some cool stuff with it. Then you kind of stepped up to the Atari 400, which was cool because you could do some programming, but then you could get the modem, that 300-baud modem on there. Then you started to figure out what you could do with a 300K-baud modem. Much like Bill, Chris found that his computer was a connection to the outside world, a sense of community that he couldn't find elsewhere. Growing up in Detroit, there wasn't a vast amount of things to do. So you had this modem and you start exploring, Chris says. You find your first bulletin board and then that bulletin board has a little bit of information on it and you kind of, that's what intrigued me. In a general sense, it hasn't really revolutionized much from there. You called in to the bulletin board, you post messages and you call in back and forth. It was a lot slower and there were no graphics, but the essential kind of concept was the same as today. The key to hacking in the early 1980s was figuring out how to make free phone calls. Phone freakers had been doing this since the 1960s, but it was even more vital for precursors to our modern internet. Dialing into a BBS in your area code wouldn't cost too much. But if you were in Detroit and wanted to access a board outside your area code, that meant long-distance calls. And long-distance calls used to be damn expensive. So any computer hacker worth his salt quickly learned how to hack the phone company. And that's what the Wizard of ARPANET started doing. That opens up the world, Chris tells me. Now I can call a BBS in New York, or I can call this board over here in San Diego. And then you start getting out there. And once you were out there, the hackers of the inner circle and elsewhere would have a variety of ways to break into networks. Except that during this period, security was so weak that break is too strong a word. An operating manual could yield archived administrator passwords for a variety of systems simply because nobody bothered to change the default passwords. Chris's true love, although he's reluctant to talk about it today, was hacking the ARPANET and military systems. In fact, that's how I found him. I was researching what kind of espionage the Soviet Union was conducting on the ARPANET and MILNET in the 1980s. We know of a few Soviet hackers who were looking for state secrets, but there were also kids like Chris rummaging around MIT, Stanford, and UCLA for fun. 
Then we started to get some of the ARPANET stuff, and I somehow got one of the main dial-in connection points, Chris tells me. And from there, it was just kind of discovering all the different hosts. Once you were able to get into one, I was able to get the full host list. So I got the full list of hosts on the ARPANET from just snooping around. From that point, I was able to go through and just test them all out, Chris says. What he had tapped into was known as TIP, sort of a supermodem that routed information along the ARPANET. According to the FBI documents I obtained, the military and researchers at the various nodes on the ARPANET had not detected the penetration. Their informant, the BBS narc, John Maxfield, was the one who learned about it straight from the wizard of ARPANET's mouth. Chris had no idea that he was constantly being watched by one of his own. Maxfield, who went by the handle Cable Pair on BBS boards, was never approached by the FBI about the activities he was observing in the early 1980s. Instead, Maxfield approached them. He'd later recall walking into the FBI to tell them about the kids swapping software on BBS boards. The FBI replied that this sounded like a bad thing, but got tripped up when he started using words like modem. They had no idea what he was talking about. But after Maxfield's initial contact, he developed a long-term relationship with the agency. He set up meetings with hackers to gather evidence firsthand, and once allowed the FBI to photograph the kids from across the street in a massive sting operation. He invited a bunch of the different hackers from around the country to visit him in Detroit. So we all got together. It was like a hacker jam session at the guys' offices with all this phone equipment and computers, Chris said. High school and college kids came from around the country. It was like, let me show you what I can do and let me show you this. Maxfield would say later that he was particularly impressed by the Wizard of Arpanet's skills. Chris had no idea that he was incriminating himself with every keystroke. The FBI took pictures of everybody that came and went, and they also had some sort of early keyboard monitors back then to see what was going on, Chris says. I happened to show them, hey, here's the whole list host for the ARPANET. Take a look at this. This is pretty cool. I can get on any of these computers. Maxfield rarely talked to the press after the raids, but journalist Patricia Franklin spoke to him for her 1990 book, Prophets of Deceit, Dispatches from the Front Lines of Fraud. When I contacted Franklin recently, she wasn't surprised that Maxfield was hard to track down. He was secretive and self-righteous, she said, and used the same rhetoric that had become common in the 21st century whenever people talk about hacking or copyright infringement. Hacking is a completely impersonal, dehumanized crime, Maxfield told her. None of them would dream of taking a gun or a knife and mugging someone on the street. The hacker doesn't know his victim, and the victim never knows the hacker. There is never any physical risk involved. They are introverted thrill-seekers. That tone would ooze out of the heavyweights at the FBI and elsewhere when it came to software and movie piracy. You wouldn't steal a fill-in-the-blank, is now little more than a punchline in online circles. 
But at the time, it was the best way to make the case that intellectual property should be considered real property, and the virtual locks should be considered real locks. Maxfield literally compared himself to the Lone Ranger. With a computer, hackers can carry out their wildest fantasies, Maxfield said in the late 1980s according to Franklin's book. And there is no one supervising them. It's the alternative to a street gang. The hacker is a street corner hood. Except today, the meeting place is a bulletin board. Maxfield became so infamous that the first issue of the legendary 2600 magazine in January of 1984 dedicated its cover to the October 1983 raids and the outing of Maxfield as an FBI informant. When Chris was finally busted, the FBI turned his bedroom upside down and took all his computer equipment. But Chris's mother, who was home at the time, later defended him in an Associated Press article. He bragged he knew how to do it, but he said he would never harm anything if he got in, she said in 1983. He would just look and leave. It was just the thrill of getting in. The FBI had two problems. One was that they were losing the public relations battle in the press. There were extensive notes in the FBI file about the fact that they'd have to tread lightly since they were dealing with so many juveniles. The second problem was that there wasn't really any computer hacking laws. Breaking into a computer system wasn't illegal unless you took a broad interpretation of wire fraud law, as the FBI did with Bill. But since Chris was just 14, they struggled with whether to charge him. The LA Times ran stories with headlines like, FBI won't go lightly on whiz kids. But ultimately, the agency did go easy on group members who were under 18. It was a calculated move, and one that would pay off, since so many Americans had no idea what hacking was. The idea that the FBI was picking on innocent, curious kids gained traction in communities like Irvine, California, where four of the hackers had their computers confiscated. The local Irvine newspapers questioned heavy-handed FBI tactics as kids held press conferences insisting that they didn't do anything wrong. In fact, they pointed their fingers at Bill Landreth, the cracker, for getting them involved. Bill's physical isolation from the other hackers, like the four who knew each other in Irvine, two were brothers, made him a mysterious figure in the press. Unlike the kids from higher-income families, Bill had avoided the attention of newspapers. The FBI never charged Chris with anything. He went back to school and relished in his new celebrity. I got a lot of newspaper clippings, and then I became very popular. And then I got a lot of girlfriends, and it was all good, Chris says, laughing. By the end of October 1983, the same month as the raids, the FBI was asking Congress for stronger anti-hacking laws. Or rather, hacking laws at all. But to do that, the agency acknowledged that they'd have to redefine the legal meanings of both property and trespassing. Right now, there is a void in the law, FBI Deputy Assistant Director Floyd Clark testified. Our experience indicates that certain legal issues involving computer-related crime could be clarified, particularly the definition of property in the sense of a computer program having its own clearly defined inherent value and the issue of trespass. The FBI would get their laws, and the teen cowboys of the Wild West would simply continue chasing sunsets.
The first computer hacking law, the Counterfeit Access Device and Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, was enacted in 1984. But the laws would only grasp at the low-hanging fruit. Richard C. Hollinger's 1990 paper, Hackers, Computer Heroes or Electronic Highwaymen, argued that the laws only addressed the least disruptive elements in hacker society. Currently, we are in the midst of a paradox. The computer criminals doing the least harm and who are generally the least involved in malicious activities, hackers, have become almost the exclusive prosecutorial focus of computer crime law enforcement. Bill and Chris were in the least harm category. They hadn't stolen anything but time, if that can be considered a crime. The true computer thieves were those inside a given organization. A 1984 study by the American Bar Association, cited by Hollinger, found that 77% of computer crime was committed by a company's own employees. Essentially, every computer hacking law passed since 1984 is a cousin of the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. And the original act itself is still being used, sometimes ham-handedly, by law enforcement today. It's the law that Internet activist Aaron Schwartz was charged under after he downloaded a massive cache of academic papers. Schwartz faced fines of $1 million and 35 years in prison. He took his own life in January of 2013 before the case was heard. When I went to Santa Monica to meet Bill, I was pretty sure I'd hear a story about how the FBI ruined his life. But I left believing that it hadn't. The world ruined Bill's life, a world that couldn't quite find a place for his particular talents, faults, and petty mistakes. While it's a cliché, it's hard not to think that perhaps Bill was ahead of his time in many ways. He was smart enough to see the vulnerabilities no one else could in what would become the modern Internet. Legislation was drafted because few people in law enforcement had even thought what the inner circle did was possible, and digital security is now more important than ever. People get six-figure salaries to find vulnerabilities in networks today. But just being four years older than Chris meant Bill was tried as an adult and saw his life set on another course. In Los Angeles, it's not uncommon to walk by familiar faces, briefly famous but now forgotten. Nobody does a double-take when they see Bill. Instead, given that he's one of the roughly 40,000 people sleeping on L.A. streets on any given night, people tend to avert their eyes from his gaze. I thank Bill for sharing his story with me, and I leave him in Santa Monica. The world seems content to punish him for the victimless crimes he committed over three decades ago. But that's certainly not unique to Bill or computer hackers. Who knows how his life would have turned out if he'd been embraced by the FBI rather than prosecuted. I asked Bill what was in his future. He says he's thinking about writing something, maybe a book or a screenplay, but mostly he just isn't sure. I'll probably end up not getting that far along, Bill tells me with a nervous chuckle before we part ways. I'd like to buy a house, but I don't know. So there you have the story of Bill Landreth and the so-called Chris, who uh, 
Matt Novak tracked down uh, with the redacted Freedom of Information Act documents that he obtained. I actually managed to find Chris uh, just with historical uh, newspaper articles um, and called him by his real first name in the podcast, uh, although I did withhold his last name since he's obviously not interested in in being uh, known currently for his past. So we heard not only the story of uh, Bill Landreth and Chris, the Wizard of Arpanet, um, but also this John Maxfield, um, who couldn't be found. And uh, if I remember correctly, the information I read that uh, he had one point had changed his name and was hiding out from uh, a lot of people that were after him. He was, he was a very um, despised individual for many, many years. So that catches us up to date on behind the scenes information of the 414s and the Inner Circle. Forgotten TV Memorial. It's become nearly impossible in recent months to keep up with all of the notable deaths of people that were relevant to the Forgotten TV era. But here are a few in recent weeks that I've noted. Leave it to Beaver. Ken Osmond, probably best known for his role as the all-too-polite Eddie Haskell on Leave it to Beaver, has died at age 76. Now, Ken Osmond was typecast by that well-known TV role, and even though in later years he tried to do other things, such as become a police officer for the LAPD, he found it difficult to shake the Eddie Haskell image. Ken Osmond started in feature films working as an extra. He had his first speaking part at age nine, a small role in the film So Big, starring Jane Wyman. After Leave it to Beaver, in 1970, Ken Osmond joined the Los Angeles Police Department and grew a mustache in order to try to secure anonymity from the average citizen. He worked for the LAPD as a motorcycle officer. In the mid-80s, he returned to the role of Eddie Haskell in the CBS TV movie, Still the Beaver. That led to the revival series, the new Leave it to Beaver on the Disney Channel. Ken Osmond reportedly died at his Los Angeles home, surrounded by family members. Familiar face Richard Hurd has died at age 87. The highly recognizable actor played admirals on both Sequest, DSV, and on Star Trek. And he was notably visitor leader John on the V miniseries. He was also a regular on T.J. Hooker alongside William Shatner and had roles on shows such as Quantum Leap, The A-Team, Heart to Heart, and Seinfeld. Mr. Kyle, you were instructed to compensate during the Ion Storm. But I tried, Mr. Spock, I tried. with the equipment cannot be tolerated. But Mr. Spock, I tried. agonizer. No, Mr. Spock. Your agonizer, please. No, Mr. Spock. I tried, I really tried. Actor John Winston has died at age 91. Probably not a household name, 
but he's known to Star Trek fans as Lieutenant Kyle from the original series. The actor appeared 11 times in the role of the lieutenant that was well-trained in starship operations, progressing from transporter technician and engineering assistant to bridge duty stations where he operated the helm and occasionally the science station. The character of Kyle was promoted to commander and seen in the film Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan on the bridge of the Reliant. He seemed to accept his role in Star Trek fandom, even appearing in the fan-made production Star Trek New Voyages. Some additional facts about John Winston I uncovered. Uh, He was born in England and raised in Australia, and his non-Star Trek roles included appearances on The Man from U.N.C.L.E., The Time Tunnel, Max Headroom, and the 1990 miniseries Lucky Chances. What you won't find about John Winston virtually on any website is that he was also a talented singer and performer, performing on stage, playing in classic stage presentations of Showboat. He played King Arthur in Camelot. He was in South Pacific, Guys and Dolls, Oliver, and My Fair Lady. In the 1970s, he sang the national anthem at L.A. Dodgers games. He also was known to give greatly of his time to the Los Angeles Bureau of Music, where he directed shows and mentored young musical talent that performed for hospitals and retirement homes. Talent like young Michael A. Klein, who suffered from Hodgkin's disease. John Winston served as his voice coach and paid for his guitar lessons. One to beam up, John Winston, dead at 91. Legendary writer Dennis O'Neill has died at age 81. He was a comic book writer and editor for both Marvel and DC Comics from the 1960s through the 1990s. His contributions include some very well-known storylines from his run on Green Lantern slash Green Arrow to his many Batman stories. He was one of the guiding forces behind the return of the Batman character to its dark roots from the campiness of the 1960s, and he created the Batman characters Ra's al Ghul and Dr. Leslie Tompkins. His connection to the Forgotten TV era was actually his only non-comic book related TV credit. He was the writer of the final episode of the TV series Logan's Run, which went unaired during its original CBS run and not seen until it was aired in the 1990 reruns on TNT. So let's talk about podcasts that are currently in development for Forgotten TV. For some time now, I've been working on James at 15, and uh, that is what I was working on before all of our lives were interrupted in mid-March by the coronavirus Uh, James at 15 uh, is going to be featuring tidbits about the show not found anywhere else to my knowledge. And although both Lance Kerwin and creator Dan Wakefield have both agreed to be on the podcast, continued world events seem to have thrown a wrench in the production schedule of this podcast. And while I'm not being told no, Nailing down a time for both of these people to uh, uh, appear on Forgotten TV in interviews has proven to be unsuccessful thus far. So James at 15 is sort of on hold right now, but it is not forgotten. So I've moved on to start working on Angie. I have uh, 
reached out to Robert Hayes through his longtime best friend, Pat Culleton. You may remember that Pat Culleton was Robert Hayes' co-star on the Starman TV series, playing George Fox's assistant, Agent Wiley. Well, it turns out Pat Culleton is one of Robert Hayes' oldest friends. And if there's anyone who can reach Mr. Hayes, it's going to be Pat Culleton. I also have uh, heard back from singer Maureen McGovern, who sang the hit song Different Worlds, featured on Angie. So uh, that will be an exclusive uh, response that she gave me that will be presented in the podcast. So while I'm waiting to hear back from Robert Hayes and quite possibly uh, Donna Pescal herself, since uh, Bob is still friends with Donna and in touch with her to this day, in light of the current world events of the last couple of weeks, I felt it would be appropriate to take a look at milestones of black TV history on the next Forgotten TV. Now, I guarantee you're going to learn something. I know I did. And what I found is that milestones of black history are inextricably tied to the history of television in the 20th century from the very beginning. Here's a sneak peek. The National Broadcasting Company, a service of RCA, erected the transmitting antenna for experimental television station W2XBS. NBC began semi-regular experimental broadcasts in 1938 on New York station W2XBS, the so-called Channel One. These early broadcasts of radio with pictures were typically news, sporting events, religious services, and Broadway plays. On June 14th, immediately following four and a half hours of broadcasts from the 1939 World's Fair, actress and blues singer Ethel Waters starred in her own television special on W2XBS midway into her long, illustrious career. The Ethel Waters Show was thus the first time a person of color was broadcast on television to the public. From the Ethel Waters Show in 1939 and the Beulah Show in 1950... The Beulah Show... Brought to you by self-washing dress for dishes and fine washables. Starring Ethel Waters as Beulah. To the forgotten contributions of the DuMont Network, including the now-lost, extremely obscure sitcom that starred Amanda Randolph, the first black actor as a regular cast member on a scripted show, as well as the ultimate fate of the DuMont Library. Dumont, first with the finest in television. The variety show entertainers of the 1950s and the integration of people of color as main characters in TV shows of the 1960s, including the return of a black woman in a starring role as lead character. To the mixed public reaction to popular sitcoms of the 70s and the founding of black entertainment television in 1980. It's 41 years of milestones of black TV history on the next Forgotten TV. Coming soon to the Forgotten TV podcast feed. Subscribe for free on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Podbean, or your podcast app of choice.